Hey everybody, welcome to Rocks Across the Pond. It is a curling podcast coming to you from Richmond, Virginia. My name is Ryan McGee and joining me from Southampton, England, our very own professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan, you notice that I'm not at quite as verbose as I usually am when I, when I do that introduction and the reason for that is the baby is currently asleep. Oh, so we don't want to wake the baby up. Correct, because the the longer that I don't wake the baby, the longer we get to sit here and do this podcast. That's a good point. Are you going to rock the baby like Russell Westbrook throughout the episode? Um, so he's not in this room. Uh, oh. But uh, I might, yeah, if... If push comes to shove, we may have a third co-host. If I if we're looking to try and finish this thing, um, and and he and he decides that it's time to wake up, yeah, we might wind up with a third co-host. All right, and how's your sleep been? Uh, it's been it's it's gotten better. Um, he's we've got him to the point where he is sleeping between feeding, so he'll sleep uh, at night. He'll sleep three hours at a time, which my understanding is pretty good uh, considering we are under two weeks right now. So I think, I think that's, I think that's pretty good. Um, shout out to the tranquil turtle. Um, I highly recommend the tranquil turtle to anyone who has a newborn or even if they themselves have trouble falling asleep, uh, get yourself the tranquil turtle. Uh, it has my uh, full endorsement Um even though they, they do not give this podcast any money, um, big endorsement to the Tranquil Turtle. It has been a lifesaver. So what what does the Tranquil Turtle do? The Tranquil Turtle is this little turtle with a goofy grin, and it has a plastic shell. And the plastic shell projects moving waves on the ceiling while it plays sounds of the ocean. And it does this for exactly 27 minutes because I guess they did some kind of um, study where they decided that it takes a newborn exactly 27 minutes to um, self-soothe, fall asleep, and then get into REM. So the Tranquil Turtle does this for exactly 27 minutes and then turns itself off. Ah, that's cool. I got a I got a trick, not for kids, but for insomnia. I've got a an app, like it's a meditation app, but it's got a bunch of uh, sound things, sound loops, and one is the ocean. And mm-hmm. I swear, if I have trouble sleeping, I just put on the ocean thing. It's about a ninety minute clip, but I'm normally out within ten minutes just listening to the ocean sound. So, yeah, it worked yeah. for it worked for me. I mean, part of it was sleep deprivation, but. So when I was watching the curling world cup from China at two in the morning with uh, the little, trying to put the little dude to sleep, because this was a point where we were kind of taking turns, letting one of us sleep back in the bedroom. And then the other one deal with uh, the little dude who just fought going to sleep at night, just would not go to sleep. So I think it was Thursday night, the second night of the curling world cup. I was up at 2 AM watching the games from China Um it really worked out well that this tournament went on while I had a newborn. Um, the The timing was kind of perfect on that, so I had something to watch while he was um, cooing and rolling and trying not to go to sleep. But turned the sound all the way down on the curling and fired up the tranquil turtle and uh, put me to sleep midway through <laughs> one of the games. <laughs> I missed about I missed about half of one of. Team Roth's games from China because of the Tranquil Turtle. 
All right. <laughs> That's good. I did not see any of the Curling World Cup. Uh, I've basically checked out at this point from curling. I'm. Uh, it's the last week of classes here. I'm up to my eyeballs and uh, dissertations. Uh, students here have to, uh, basically at every British university, have to write like a 10,000 word kind of final project to graduate. And so... Uh, I've got a stack of those to read and mark, so <laughs> that's taken up most of my time. So you are also sleep deprived, basically. I would say sleep deprived, a bit grumpy, and definitely <laughs> and the students are totally over it. Like it's been a very sunny week, and uh, class attendance is like in the single digits because oh, the God. students are like, "We're done, uh, <laughs> get us out of here." And now it's sunny, so they really don't want to be in the classroom. So. So between all of that, this is about to be a really just great episode, isn't it? Uh, I think it was good. I mean, I, I think we wanted to do a year-end review, kind of a wrap-up. And uh, I think two things, like A, this year's season especially kind of went really long. And we can talk yes. a bit about that. So oh the gosh. season really officially ended Sunday. Jonathan, this season is not over. There's still another event. Oh, yes. what What is this? This is the... I don't, it's something called the Arctic Cup and it's in some, somewhere in Siberia and it's a women's event. Team Anderson is playing in it. Um, it is, it, I will say it is very interesting because of one of the teams that is playing in it. And we'll get to that once we start talking about our year in review. So it does have something that is at least of some curling interest to me. I also have no idea what time it's going to be on and whether or not it will be live streamed somewhere. But it's like, it's Memorial day weekend. They're curling a Memorial day well, United States Memorial day weekend, Jonathan. How yeah. insane is this? It's pretty crazy. I mean, the Scottish now, or the, I guess British curling to be precise, but it's almost all Scots is. So they, they basically start training again, um, July one. Oh my for next God. season, <laughs> so like, so they basically have the National Curling Academy booked out from first uh, of July through August thirty first. So that kind of is, gives you a sense of what British curling's idea of the preseason is. So, right. so uh, uh, so we're gonna we're gonna do our year in review this week, and we'll come back next week with our season preview. I guess. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a bit crazy. I mean, even even me with uh, the world mixed, I think I've got to hit the ice probably our team's looking at kind of hitting the ice kind of late mid late august so i don't have that much time away from curling and as as much as i love it there are other things i like to do in my life so uh i've kind of got a you know other activities planned and i'm sure lots of other people do too well what are you going to do this summer if you're not curling i am still writing that book or that damn book as it's increasingly being called in the back of my mind uh, we're going to do a little trip to Wales, which the only country in the UK I haven't really spent much time in. So we've okay. rented a cabin there through Airbnb and, uh, I, I, hear that, I hear that they really like drinking in Wales. Well, they like drinking. Like they are like, they are professional, like they are professional <laughs> drinkers in Wales. I think, well, I will say this, I think my first kind of after dinner drinks in the UK, uh, I learned the hard way not to try to keep up with a Brit at the pub. <laughs> it's all I'll say about that. I think they're professional drinkers everywhere here. So 
and that's that's a Canadian talking, right? So it's not <laughs> like it's not like we're like non-drinkers either. But uh, I mean, yeah, I, I just haven't been to Wales, so there's a couple of things I want to check out there, and then um, so it's kind of a summer holiday. It'll be that, and then let's see where else am I going? Up to Durham for a bit to do some work, but Dur- County Durham is always a lovely place to visit too. London for a few nights, just doing a conference. Bulgaria in September, which I'm very excited about. Sofia, Bulgaria. I, I, it has never occurred to me to visit Bulgaria. There was a conference there that kind of fit my uh, research profile, and I got an invite, and I was like, I had never been to Bulgaria. And like you, I probably hadn't thought of going to Bulgaria, but now I'm, I'm kind of excited by that, that right. prospect. So I'll let you know how Bulgaria is uh, Please sometime do. in September. Please. Please let us all know how what uh, and let us know if you find any Bulgarian curling. Uh, I don't. I did pick up a Belarusian um, pen, uh, like pennant, at the World Junior Bs because we played the Belarusian team. So uh, I don't know. Was there? There's Bulgarian curling, isn't there? I have no idea. If not, you're, I will you're the one. You're there. the one that's supposed. You're the one who's supposed to keep us up to date on Europe. That's 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 kind of your bailiwick is European curling here on this podcast. European B pool, but there is a C pool. <laughs> I have to confess that when it falls down to the sea, that's where I'm like, does that country? It's kind of like, does that country have a curling program? I'm kind of scratch. It's like there's countries that you think should and don't, and there are countries that you think shouldn't and do and are good. So you got to be a bit careful when you get kind of outside of the top tier of European curling about the assumptions you make. All right. So find, yeah, find, find some ice in Bulgaria and keep, uh, keep practicing even while you're working. I, I will do that. All right. Right. All right. So do you want to review this curling season that somehow finally ended? Uh, yeah. All right. So, I mean, this is this is a, a, the odd year in the Olympic cycle, right? It's really, mm-hmm. it's really kind of the try it out for the competitive teams, I'd say, and kind of see what you got, and then uh, maybe make some changes. And to be honest, so far there have been fewer changes than I thought would have been announced at this stage in the cycle. There's a lot of teams sticking together, so that in of itself is a bit interesting. Uh. It was also the first year for the five rock. Rule. Yeah, so, I think that's the main thing for me was the effect that the five rock rule had on some of the of these events, more so at the world level than at the Canadian provincial and Canadian championship level. But I think, I think at the world level, we really saw the five rock rule come into play in some crazy uh, swings in terms of scores at at some of these world events. Yeah, and I think it definitely makes the game more interesting. It's really only a handful of teams that can that can power their way through the five rock. Like, yep. it, it seemed like Cooey and Botcher, whenever they battled each other, they kind of had often had low scoring games. Just because both teams have the the kind of power in the middle mm-hmm. to just blast blast their way out with a quick triple and quick double, and all of a sudden, what's looking like a good end is done. But um, I, th- I think outside of that kind of power hitting tier. Uh, a lot more rocks in play, a lot more unpredictability, a lot more comebacks, and a lot of a lot more kind of interesting strategic decisions, especially late in the game. Yeah, and the so it's really become almost your most important shot if you are able to get 
a lead relatively late, your most important shot becomes the tick, the two ticks from, from your lead. Yeah. There's a few times where the ticks kind of put the, put the game away. Uh, I think basically the, I was thinking of the Japanese game against the team USA and the worlds that kind of mm-hmm. knocked the U S out basically double tick by Japan. Mm-hmm. And I, I think at the, again, at that tier, most leads now are able to do the tick without much, without much trouble. Um, but the tick game seemed a little bit more muted this year outside of that. Yeah, and it's a, it's something late in ends and it, it just the but just the way that those can kind of set up is you have to make them because if you're trying to defend a lead and you miss the ticks, you're really hosed. Like yeah. If you, play, if you play that shot and miss it, things are going to go sideways for you very quickly. But if you make them, you're pretty good to go if you're a decent team. Maybe. I, I mean, I think still, like, so if you think back to the Briar and use the, and assume, as I'm assuming, that the two of at least the three best kind of power teams out there uh, are Botcher and Cooey. I put Adine also on that tier. Um, like in both both the round robin game and the final Botcher was leading and in both cases Cooey was able with hammer to kind of generate a generate a winning end in both mm-hmm. situations whereas under the four rock I don't think that happens I think even in those cases with tick shots there's still enough shrapnel around that that uh, Cooey was able to to generate a 2 and a 3 to kind of to get his wins where in the old system it probably would have just gone to a force and Botcher would have won. Yeah. But yeah, it's a it's made the the end games that much more interesting. And the mid game, to be honest. Like I think there's a lot and I think a the, the mid game, but I also think if you take it down a level, I think just uh like having Coach a lot of junior curling this year, junior curling plus five rock uh just <laughs> generates craziness. Just it's a recipe for chaos in, in a lot of interesting ways. Uh I mean, Sometimes. just from just from watching the line scores of your English team at the World Junior Bs, like those line scores were completely drunk. They were they were completely drunk, but I think you know, I grew up pre-free guard zone playing juniors, and kind of the natural instinct then was just to hit everything, especially if you're a guys team, just just learn how to throw it hard and then blast right and wait for the miss, and. Uh, to be honest, at the junior level, there's very few teams that are accurate enough uh, with with the upweight shot to to kind of consistently clear and basically run it up and down a five rock situation. So I think all it takes is one or two misses, and an end can swing from being pretty open to being pretty junky, and not not even flashes. Just let's say you try a run back and you stuff it in a bad way, or try come around you tick the guard. Um, Five Rock really generates a lot more junk. And once you have junk, things get get unpredictable. Do you think five, and I kind of feel this way, do you think five is the right number? Or do you think teams are going to figure this out just like they figured out the three and the four Rock rules? Uh, I I think the next moves are not about how many Rocks. I think the next ways to, to generate uh, more offensive play will look at different rules, right? And so to me, the most interesting one they tried at the slams was taking away stopwatches. Yeah, that was really interesting to me too. I kind of liked that. 
Yeah, I like that too. I'm kind. Of, I kind of think there's a case to take away stabilizers, stopwatches, any kind of thing that helps in any way, shape, or form. At, at, at least, like, fine, leave it at the club level. But for the competitive level, um, there's not many stabilizers, but there still are a few people out there who kind of use a stabilizer. And uh, anything that makes it just a little bit. You are trying to take money out of Reed Carruthers' pocket right now. You realize that, right? Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> if he wants to sponsor our podcast, I can be persuaded to change my stance. I'm, I can be bought. <laughs> I, I, I for one, I for one, am pro stabilizer because that keeps one of my lines intact when I'm teaching a learn to curl when they're wondering about if they should use the stabilizer, I get to tell them, now you can use this at any level, including the Olympics, because you can't really, you can't say the name Reed Carruthers to someone trying a learn to curl in Richmond, Virginia, but you can reference the fact that elite level players use this thing and they're like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm good with this. Yeah. I I mean, I think it's fine for club level, but I think that the the point is you want to do anything. We want to do everything possible to make it harder. I think the brush, brush heads kind of helped a bit with that. Yeah. Uh, and I think stuff like that, maybe some variation of think of kind of the new timing rules. I think that's got to be tweaked a bit, but that's certainly um, the times I saw it used this year kind of made things a bit more difficult. I think there's other ways to make the game more challenging for the elite teams without kind of making, you know, giving way to the seven or nine rock free guard zone rule or some other yeah. kind of ridiculousness there. Yeah. I don't really mean, are we going to see even more, free guard zone addicts i don't honestly i don't think you can go past five and still i think you get to a point where you almost make things less interesting when you if you make it to where you can't take a guard out six or after six six or seven rocks but i just mean you know our team's gonna figure out ways to still still get a decent amount of blanks even if they're not cooey and botcher and jacobs and those teams that hit better than anyone else in the world because you would see teams even with four rock be able to bail very quickly and get their blank yeah i think i mean i think the the simple truth is curling is set up to give advantage to to the defensive it just is right that um a takeout is easier than a draw and, Mm -hmm. and um hammer kind of naturally gives you an advantage on the takeout game. And so there's always going to be an incentive to kind of combine defensiveness with hammer play to kind of protect a lead, right? That that's always just kind of be a kind of a feature of the game. And so really the question is what can be done in terms of the rules to make, to make it kind of likely enough that there's misses to keep the game interesting is the way I'd put it, if that makes sense. Yeah. But then... That, that when we had the brush gate thing, what, we, what the real problem was is that the brushing was making execution so easy that everyone was going out and throwing in the 90s. Like, you, you know, a pro team that knew how to, to carve or hold a stone wouldn't miss, and then the game became boring that way. So to me, the next evolution of kind of making the game more interesting is doing things that kind of make misses more likely make the ice bad that's my that's always been my suggestion is just make the ice bad (laughs) maybe i mean i'm not sure if make the ice bad but there's a case to be made for allowing greater variation in terms of ice quality 
I think you could play with the rock rule a little bit. I, I think that basically you should be stuck with the, the numbered stones that are assigned to your sheet. If they're mismatched, then you've got to figure that out. <laughs> right? Which, which should not be popular, but there's a lot of ways in which, because especially because the players get to make the rules, there's a lot of times where the players are incentivized to make things easier. And at some point, I think the officials in curling got to step back and think about ways to make things a little bit harder to, to make it more interesting, I'd say. On the uh, for your rock suggestion, the opposite end is something that I, th- I think it was Dean Gimmel that suggested this, and I really liked this was make the rock books public. Yeah, so that everyone has the same playing field in terms of the rocks. I mean that that would be interesting. The the thing that's interesting is I suspect you would find different teams matching different stones. Um. Well, yeah, you would, <laughs> but but you'd have. But but have curl, basically Curling Canada or USA Curling or the WCF would have a rock book that goes with each of their sets that says, you know, here's the variances in the rocks that we have in these sets. Uh, I mean, maybe. I think that uh, but be, I, each team has a rock book and sometimes they'll have different stones. Like I've, even just kind yeah. of an English curling where some of the competitive teams have kind of rock books and I kind of know the ones that do, they will have different stones than than I do, for instance. So we can actually talk about rock matching this summer if you wanted. That's a I could spend an hour talking about that subject. But it, it, a it is more art than science, and b because well, especially before we had a, a theoretical physicist and myself on our team, so we had two kind of pretty nerdy PhD people. We kind of spent a day matching rocks, and we spent a lot of time arguing about the scientific method and how to apply it to <laughs> rock matching. So there's a, there's a lot of people who I think do like non rigorous approaches, and then. Um, invent invent problems that aren't there, if that makes sense. And so I, I have noticed that all, like for instance, my rock book will say something significantly different than another person's rock book. Maybe I'm wrong, maybe they're wrong, but uh, if everyone's rock books are made public, I think it'd be kind of interesting because I think some, some things are obvious and stand out, but other people would have kind of pretty big disagreements there too. All right, well, Jonathan, the, the five rock rule was the biggest curling story that mattered to curling people i'd probably say that the biggest curling story in terms of news generated was ryan fry and jamie cooey's trip to the red deer curling classic earlier this year and the various fallout from from that from that event they uh Jonathan, do you want to recap this? I mean, I, well, I assume everyone who listens kind of knows, but it was basically, I mean, there's different versions. And since everything I heard was kind of like you, Every- third hand through the media, the, the basic media story is they were playing in a bond spiel uh, with Chris Shelley was the third kind of, I guess, identifiable player. DJ Kidby was the fourth, who's also kind of plays on tour, but perhaps not as high profile. And... Uh, I think they just entered this bond spiel for fun because that's none of that's none of those players is their normal team. It is a cash spiel, and uh, they got drunk. <laughs> they did. Then they got very drunk. What happened after that is, I guess, subject to some dispute. There was the team was kicked out. That's not in dispute. Um, there was video posted of Jamie Cooey crawling on the ice that I saw on social media. So he was basically too drunk to stand up on the ice. Uh, and then there's allegations that I guess, which is I, something that, which is something that 
many of us have have been to our our detriment in the past. We, I'm sure, a, a bunch of us listening to this have have curled when they probably should not have curled. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I, I would say I, I actually way back in the day, a team that was very prominent in Quebec. We're talking in the '90s, like they they're kind of be like super masters now or whatever. But they showed up at an end of year bond spiel. Uh, went out and had a whole bunch. They, they played a kind of the the six o'clock draw, and they, I think we had them again at the ten o'clock draw or something. It was like one of these round the clock bond spiels, party spiel. And they, I was just out of juniors with a team, and we thought we were going to get slaughtered because this was a team significantly higher caliber than us. And they they got completely plastered and kind of did a similar Jamie Cooey thing. The the big difference was a social media did not exist in the nineties. <laughs> Thank God for that for me <laughs> and like all my kind of college adventures and stuff. So that's part of the issue. And then I think that team chose a spiel that was basically known as an end of year party spiel. So it wasn't a problem. This was kind of, you know, slam level teams taking one step down into what still is a pretty serious cash spiel event. So I think that was the other issue. And I think the third thing here was the the behavior apparently was not quite clear what happened. Like heard different versions of kind of damage to the locker room, possibly brooms being broken people yelling at people but uh so there was also just a bit of a bit of violence to go with the drunkenness which yeah again is not unheard of (laughs) so 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 this blew up because it was a competitive curling tournament and curling can get some some traction just because it's it's kind of an odd sport we are we are a different breed of cat uh us who choose to play and follow this game um, so that, that was part of it. It was a little bit that, hey, it's curling and it's competitive curling. And then it was, hey, these people were too drunk to curl. Uh, and then I think the main thing that made this blow up is you had an Olympic gold medalist involved in what went down. So I think all of that combined, conspired to, to kind of have this blow up in a way that no one, that really it shouldn't have been as big of news as it may have been but I, th- I think there was just uh you know that that it kind of blew up because you had you had an olympic gold medalist involved in my opinion yeah i think it's social media plus an olympic gold medalist i i think first out of the gate some of the team players social media posts didn't help the matter it was clear the next round were I mean, you you were in the PR industry, so it looked to me like it was very well written the second round. Like the second round yes. music came out, looked like everything that had to be said and done was said and done and quickly. The first round uh, was probably poured some fuel on the fire, which didn't help matters. Yeah, they, I think, yeah, their, their number one mistake was what was said and what was said in the immediate aftermath um, when they probably knew they were in the wrong, when you know, you, and that's, a, that's something you run into in PR is you have some people who at the beginning don't think that they're in the wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and that's when you can get in trouble. And that appears what to have happened here. So you had Ryan Fry, the, the fallout from this was you had, Ryan Fry kind of take a step back from curling for a bit. And then you had Mark Kennedy join up with team Jacobs while he was kind of figuring things out. And then they won the Canada cup together. And then 
whether or not that is related to what happened later in the year, you have a Olympic champion team break up as Ryan Fry leaves Team Jacobs and was replaced by, hey, Mark Kennedy, who helped them win the Canada Cup this year. And then now you have Ryan Fry uh, playing in Ontario with John Epping in what may be the strangest combination of of two people on a curling team that that I can remember since I have started following this. That'll be an interesting team. That'll be this year's Einerson team. I was wrong about the Einerson team, so I'm not going to say that team won't, won't work. I'm not going to bet against them. I'm not going to lose my money twice, but uh, it'll be interesting is all I'll say about that. I desperately need the Ryan Fry, John Epping reality show in my life. I need them living together in an apartment and cameras following them at all times during the curling season. I need that in my life. Yeah, that'll be, uh, it'll be, it'll be fun to watch. I mean, I think that the one thing that's interesting, the one thought I've had since this all happened is that the last two Canadian gold medalist teams kind of broke up in weird ways. Right, like they didn't. Like it's it's kind of because as John Morris basically left the year before uh, the Olympics and kind of just kind of I guess fell out with Martin or decided he was done. And in this case, it was like Fry kind of after kind of almost sounded like they were committed to the next cycle, just kind of stepping off after a year. So it's kind of interesting that um, these teams that are, are kind of obviously making a lot of money in sponsorship. Uh, end up kind of ending in sort of semi-acrimonious ways, which, I'd, you know, maybe in the past teams broke up because of fights and stuff, but it wasn't as high profile. And it almost seems like um, there's a lot more pressure even after you win to kind of hold the team together. That makes it a bit difficult to sustain excellence over a long time period. And to their credit, they've done, from a PR standpoint, Team Jacobs has done this the the right way they have maintained that they're still friends and they're still on good terms and everything's hunky dory but fries just kind of parting ways and and moving on and now you have uh, Mark Kennedy joining uh, Team Jacobs which is going to be really fascinating uh, next season yeah I mean that that's an interesting one too I, I kind of I didn't see Ken, well I wasn't sure if Kennedy was going to come back and if you'd asked me a year ago Kennedy being with Jacobs I wouldn't have seen that coming either nope uh but it worked really well at the canada cup uh and maybe because he's a bit more of a chill player compared to ryan fry so maybe he's that stabilizing kind of the ice to the other players fire and it works really well all right what's next what was our next uh interesting story from the season uh so you're gonna have to fill me in on this one because i don't read korean but you somehow do <laughs> so uh so the team kim Yunjun Saga, the Garlic Girls from last year, right? So they were the darlings of the Olympic Games, uh, performed really well there, had a breakout year last year, and then just disappeared entirely, and we didn't see them all season. So what happened, Ryan? Well, if you read various reports translated by Google and various reports from Yonhap, which is the Korean news agency, uh, the team Kim kind of quickly after winning silver last year and uh, at the Olympics um, accused Korean curling of a whole bunch of things. Um, they, they accused their coach of, um, of emotional abuse. They accused 
the curling federation and their coaches of withholding money from them. And I guess a lot of that also involves the fact that I guess one of the people from the Korean curling federation was the father of basically the, the, not the Canadian coach that was hired to help out team Korea during the Olympics, but of the, the Korean coach of, of this team. So they, they were accused of withholding money from them, uh, and of, uh, these various abuses. And this team kind of dropped off the face of the planet. Um, so it was partially because of that. Uh, it was partially because, uh, Kim Eun-jung herself, uh, decided, um, she and her husband, they had just gotten married the summer between the Olympics in this last season, they decided to start a family. So like a lot of the curlers that we saw this year, she was on maternity leave for a bit. Um, and I believe she is still on maternity leave. Um, so that kind of, this team was no longer getting the funding from the, from Korean curling because they had, uh, they had lost out to King, uh, team Kim Minji before this season. So team Kim Minji got the Korean curling funding to go out on tour this year. So between that and the fact that Kim Un Young was on maternity leave, we did not see this team at all this year, but we did see every now and then one of these reports come up from Agence France Presse or from Yonhap in Korea of reports of uh, updates on what was going on. Eventually, the Korean Curling Federation basically sided with Team Kim and said that everything that they accused um, accused their coaches and of um, this one leader in the Korean Curling Federation of doing basically that they were they were right. Uh, so the um, the guy who was like the lead, the head of Korean curling stepped down. Um, this coach stepped down, um, and hopefully that means that between that happening and Team Kim and uh, Kim Eun Jung um, coming off of paternity leave, hopefully that means that we will see this team again next year. And it looks like we might because, as we mentioned before, there is this Arctic Cup curling event going on in Russia at the end of the month. And the Garlic Girls, without uh, Kim Un Jung, but the other four, the other three from the team and their uh, alternate, are competing in this event. And that's what I'm interested to see. I'm interested to see how this team does. And it's their first real event. Um, I think it's, I know it's their first WCT event um, since uh, since last season. So really going to be good to see them back playing in a tournament and hopefully that means that we will see the full team back next year and what i really hope is that there's enough funding to go around in korean curling that both team kims can get on tour next year because we saw team kim minji really break out this year so you have two excellent curling teams from Korea that deserve to be on tour and deserve to be in these big events. And hopefully there's enough funding to make that happen. Yeah. I mean, it's good. It does. So basically as near as I can tell, uh, they basically have a playoff in August and whoever wins that playoff gets like all the funding for the year. I guess they go to all the events. Yeah. That's what I, that's what I read in one of those yawn hap stories. Yeah. So you have the two teams are going to play again, I guess this summer whether it's July or August, I can't remember which one, but yeah, they'll play each other in a playoff and the winner is team Korea for the season and gets the funding. But hopefully these teams are good enough that 
hopefully they can find the funding to put both of them out there. I mean, the, the one interesting question is, did Kim and Yun Jung get enough profile from winning an Olympic silver medal that they could actually sponsor their team to maybe not kind of go all around the world, but at least kind of play Pacific, uh, you know, WCT events and mm-hmm. get some kind of funding. You'd hope that a silver medal would get you something, but I think that's really going to depend on what market you're in, right? So it's not really clear yeah. what the market is in Korea for silver medalists now now one full season removed. Yeah, and which, we'll, which we'll see. They were very high profile and really captured the imagination of their country during that Olympics. Um, hopefully they've been able to, and, and I guess part of that was withholding of funding from um, from whatever they had going on, their their version of the Schuster World Tour that uh, Schuster went on here uh, in America after winning gold, uh, I guess the, a lot of the funds were withheld from them. It was something like two, um, it was something like two million won, which is like two hundred thousand dollars US, was was withheld from them um, that they should have they should have received, and that's. That's a decent amount of money to get a curling team to tournaments around the world. That I mean, that could probably get you two full seasons of funding if that's yeah. all. You, if all you were doing is putting it towards team expenses, that could probably get you two full seasons yeah. of funding, depending on how far you wanted yeah. to travel and stuff. But and and then next year you have this um, this Japan version of the WCT getting launched through the World Curling Tour. So you're going to have, it looks like you're going to have more tournaments going on in Japan. So you think that that will mean that more Korean teams, because you have these two Team Kims, Team Kim Eun Jung, Team Kim Min Ji. There's another team, Team Gim, that um, was actually pretty solid and showed up in some of the second tier uh, WCT events in Canada and beat a lot of really good teams. Um, So the talent is there. The question is, is the funding there to get them to some of these high pro, high profile tournaments and get them qualified for GSOC events? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So it'll be interesting to see if they can bounce back next year. Mm-hmm. All right. Switching over from the Asia Pacific region to Europe, uh, Jonathan, English curling had kind of a banner year this year, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think it was a good year. Um, I'm trying to think. I, I, I mean... I can't remember the last time the men have been up in the A pool. So I think it was like 90, it was either 95 or 96. Yeah. So it's, that's been, <laughs> it's a long time. It's 20, 24, 25 years. Uh, so that was a big event. I mean, the Englishmen have been kind of bouncing around the top of the B pool for ages, but finally kind of got over the top and, and grabbed second place and got the promotion. So next year, Team England will be in the A pool at the Euros. And, Top seven finish will get them uh, to the worlds. So and or the worlds, it was worlds that England hasn't been to since ninety five ninety six. Yeah, that's, so I'm not a hundred percent certain about the A pool. So if someone knows, they can tweet at us. And uh, I know, I know the person who would know because they know everything about the of England curling. But I don't have it. I want to say it was O two. I want to say it was O two. Eh, makes sense. Um, so that was a good year there uh, in mixed doubles. So we had Anna Fowler on from the Fowler team. They, they was the, the mixed doubles team. And uh, they, achieved, as you've heard in the, in the previous podcast, that one of their goals was to make top 16 because top 16 got them qualified for next year's World Mixed Doubles Championship and the possibility of earning um, 
kind of kind of doing better there. Uh, they do not earn Olympic qualification points off that. We had a little bit of a discussion about that. I think that will become perhaps a, a bigger issue going forward, but we'll kind of see how that plays out. Uh, and I guess the junior boys I coached, they made the playoffs, which is the first time a junior boys team has made the playoffs. Uh, well, I think ever at the World Junior B, and I think Ben's team made the playoffs one year, uh, when they had the European juniors, maybe seven, eight years ago. So that's kind of, again, a time top performance there. And the girls, the junior girls also qualified for the playoffs. So we kind of managed to get both the junior teams into the playoffs, top eight at World Bs. So both those teams are also young. They've got lots of more kicks in the can if they keep at it. So hoping to build on that for next year too. Yeah, and not only did Andy Reid um, make it to European A's, and it'll be the first time that England has been in European A's since 2003, but he was also one win away from Worlds, a very good showing by Team England at the new um, World Qualification event down in New Zealand. They uh, they acquitted themselves quite well. I know it's not the result that they would have wanted, but they have nothing to hang their heads about um, after the way they finished uh, down in New Zealand, being one win away from from a world's appearance. Yeah, and they've got another shot next year. So they've actually got by going to the A pool, they've they've got two paths. So top seven. I can't quite remember how it works at the bottom of the A pool, but the even if they kind of finish near the bottom, they can still kind of squeak through to the squeak through to the world qualification event as well. I believe eight and, eight and nine go to the world qualification event. 10 means you're relegated without a, without anything. So I guess the mis- message to team, team England is don't finish last. Or have someone from the B pool decline their invitation to the world qualification event. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, that could happen. I think it's less likely to this year with Olympic points on the line and yep. with it now being in Europe, it'll be at uh, Kisakalio, everyone's favorite curling spot in Finland. So uh, it'll be there in January. And I think that'll make it affordable for the more of the European teams. It may be an issue for the Asia Pacific teams this time around. Another thing that was interesting to me uh, being in the U.S. about this year in curling was the creation of the Curling World Cup, which was a four-leg event that the WCF created along with uh, a couple of Chinese backers um, to bring together um, these different tournaments where you had one team uh, representing their country, um, Canada had multiple teams in the final because they qualified multiple teams for that event. But for the first three legs, at least you had one country, one entry um, in uh, each of these events. Uh, It's kind of a mixed bag on whether or not this event worked and it is a work in progress. It was a first year event. So you have a lot of educating people on what the event is and that's, always very tough for a first year event. Um, but to me, what worked for this event was that the main focus, the main reason that this whole thing was created was to get more exposure for curling in the U S and China. And I believe that happened. You had a lot more live curling featuring team USA on, 
uh, on U.S. television this year than you probably have ever before. Um, the the coverage there was a lot of live games on NBC Sports Network and on Olympic Channel, especially for um, these last two. Uh, I'm sorry, especially for the leg that was in Omaha in this last leg, the grand final in China. You had a lot of live games on TV. Um, and then the same the same in China. Uh, almost all of their games were were on television. And then the other thing that I think worked for, for this event was it got a lot more exposure to mixed doubles, which is a new um, – a new Olympic event and it's trying to raise the profile of mixed doubles. So I think those two things worked for the curling world cup. Now there's a lot, there's some other things that I think the event needs to figure out, but those two things, getting it on television in the U S and China and getting more exposure for mixed doubles. I think that event did that. Yeah. I mean, I think if that's what they're trying to do, that's fine. And I think, uh, it gives the World Curling Federation another property, right? Another media property to sell, which is probably good business for them too. It's not clear to me what it's all about. It's, it's, it's neither a slam, nor is it a national championship, especially when you end up with the grand final and you had like, you know, Canada one and Canada two. It's not, it just didn't have that national feel. Like you weren't really cheering for a nation, even though the teams were identified as national teams. And the flip side was it wasn't really a slam. So that was problem one. I think problem two was um, I did not like the double round Robin, to be honest. I thought that was uh, boring to be kind of completely frank. I didn't like the kind of sole qualification of, of one team from each pool into the final. I think I think doing something similar to the Canada Cup where it's a round robin, if you can only invite seven teams, so be it, only invite seven teams and uh, or six teams, and then just do a round robin. Uh, first gets a bye to the final, second and third play a semifinal. I think that's a format that works for this kind of an event. And then I, I would make it three regional qualification tournaments and then a, a final. And you just kind of decide how many teams you want in the 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 final uh, final event, and then qualify out of those those three events, and maybe expand the number of countries. That the fact that Swiss women have been dominating um, the international game for the last decade, and you didn't have a Swiss women's team in any of these these events, made no sense to me. Well, you did in the grand final. Yeah. So I mean, and so it's so, so it was weird, right? Because you had to win a world championship to get there. Like, the whole thing just didn't yeah. make any sense. So I think it needs yeah. a it needs a serious rethink. I don't think it should be canceled. I think no, not at all. I think developing an elite event for outside of Canada that's trying to produce a caliber of play similar to the Grand Slams is good. Um, but the current format really needs a rethink, and I, I, I'm not persuaded that the path is focusing more on the name brand of the teams. I really think for the WCF, the real path forward is figuring out a way to make it a national competition. And we've, we've seen a little bit of this in, in what you'd call soccer, but football with this new kind of uh, uh, League of Nations Cup they've introduced in Europe. And again, it kind of seemed like a weird format where they launched it, but actually it's got a bit of traction behind it because everybody loves cheering for their national team, right? So... To me, that's the real selling point. They just got to figure out a format that makes it clear that it's nations competing or countries competing, not individual teams. Yeah. And I think, I think the, the we we should have 
an episode this summer where we just throw out ideas on ways to fix this format because I think we can fill an entire episode with just um, different ideas on format. But I think the one thing that they can do and the one thing that they they didn't do is they did they didn't answer the question why they didn't say why are we doing this um, and I think the easiest thing is they said they just say okay the way what the curling world cup is is the men's and the women's and the mixed doubles team teams earn points for their federation and at the end of it the federation with the most points gets the world cup and they are our season long um, federation champion and I think that 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 gives you that gives you a reason that we're doing this. It gives you a reason that we're doing this that does not currently exist, and it gives honestly it it gives Canada something else to win and brag about. And I think you really need that in curling. Yeah, no, I think I knew that would be a good format, right? That would be a great way to do it. And then it might mean a little bit of a hit short term if you're kind of make the first three tournaments qualification tournaments, but that does expand the number of countries that could compete. And I do think that if you put, I'm kind of the believer that if you put teams on TV in kind of some kind of interesting format and put a national kind of uniform on that team, people will cheer for that team. And that'll be kind of enough of a sales pitch. I don't think you need Kevin Cooey and Nicholas Adin at every single event in order for it to work. Yeah, I agree. And they're, they're really close. Like they, they almost got it and it's the first year. So there's some things that can be improved and I hope that they, I hope that they do. I like the idea of this event. I like that it's on TV in the U S. Um, and I think that they should keep doing it. I also hope that next year, if it's in Omaha and I think that the U S leg might be in Omaha against again, next year, find a way to get people in the building yeah that's the other that's the other thing that i think didn't work was getting people in the building there in omaha you saw obviously with a lot fewer seats available but you saw people in the seats in yon choping you saw people in the seats even at um, this event this grand final event in china a lot of which were school kids that they brought in to watch the early uh, the early draws, which was a great idea and one that I wish that they had done in Omaha. I would just put it in the Twin Cities. A, there's a gajillion ice rinks there that could be flipped for this size. And B, you've got now four major curling clubs and a whole bunch of other arena clubs in the area. So you have the fan base there built in. Uh, I'm not persuaded on kind. I, I understand the thinking of why you want to put it in unconventional markets. Sometimes it works like Vegas, but Canadian snowbirds aren't going to fly down to Omaha <laughs> the same way they're going to fly down to Vegas to watch curling. So I say put it in the Twin Cities. We saw a couple of curling newcomers have their first real taste of success, I think, uh, in curling this year. You saw... Nunavut finally get a win in the main Scotties tournament. They had won a pre-qualifier before, but they got a win in the Scotties. Janine Bodner's team beat Quebec, uh, I think, in their first their first game at this year's Scotties. And then you saw Spain win a silver medal at the mixed tournament. So growth for the game. Um, at the, at that was the point of putting all of the provinces and territories into the Briar and Scotties and then allowing 
all of these countries to participate in mixed and mixed doubles. I think that those two are things that that are good. Uh, one of the, you know we, we also saw Team Nigeria get a win at the mixed doubles championship. Even though now you're you're going to see a mixed doubles A and B. I would give a shout out also to Talvi Gill, Dean Hewitt from Australia, who made the medal round, came four, so just missed the podium. But that is a country with no dedicated ice whatsoever, and they have to fly halfway around the world to compete. So they've got a lot of obstacles, and uh, the English uh, junior women's team actually played uh, Tally Gill's team uh, this year in the junior Bs. So future's looking bright for that team. And uh, yeah, it's great to see these non-kind of traditional powers kind of punch through at some of these world events. All right, what's next? What's next, Jonathan? Uh, let's talk about people getting mad online. <laughs> that seemed to be a trend this year. It really was. I guess not just in um, curling, but <laughs> I guess curling is part of the social media landscape now. And uh, with social media, you know, comes the power to share a lot of stuff, which is fantastic. But also, there's some negative things that go with that too. Yeah. Yeah, you saw a lot of curling fans getting uh, upset at various things throughout the year. You saw people got mad at the no tick rule at the Champions Cup. People why, got why mad. Why do people get at, mad at that? I don't know. I, I honestly don't. The Champions Cup, which is part of the silly season, which honestly I think even the Players Championship is kind of silly season. I think anything after Worlds is technically silly season, even though the Players is definitely a legit event. Um, I think anything after the Worlds is kind of it's the the equivalent of golf silly season. Um, but yeah, they the Champions Cup, which I think you know these slams are the places where. Um, where you can kind of mess with the rules and see how it goes. It's the same way, same thing hockey does with the AHL. Hockey, the hockey tries out rules in the AHL all the time that don't make it to the NHL. You know why we have three-on-three overtime in the NHL? Because they tried it in the AHL and found out it was awesome. So they put it in the NHL. Um, you know, they tried, they, so they've tr- the GSOC is the reason that we have the five-rock rule. So they try out. They try different things in the GSOC all the time. Some of some of them stick. Some of them don't. So why not try this? So they did it. So they said no tick in, um, in the eighth end. I think in the eighth and extras, if possible. I'm not 100 percent sure, but yeah, people were like, "Why are you messing with the rules? You know, if you keep messing the, with the rules, people are going to stop watching." It's like if you're going to not watch the Champions Cup because of no ticks in the eighth end, you were not going to watch the champions cup to begin with. I mean, that's the, actually so that the only one, reason to yeah. watch the champions cup to be frank. Yeah. Yeah. It's when it's the only reason it would, it's one of the reasons that I liked the elite 10. I did not, I was not offended by the elite tens existence because it was something different. You know, they, they tried new rules there. They tried the no tick at the elite 10 and no one said anything. Uh, they tried no stopwatches, I think, at the Elite 10. And then the match play at the Elite 10. It's something different. It's something that, to me, having one event like that that tries different things is fine. So, yeah, they're getting mad at the Champions Cup for trying the no-tick rule. Really dumb. Um, people got mad at uh, other really dumb things, like 
the little banter that Schuster and uh, Matt Hamilton at Worlds, where Hamilton said something about Schuster not getting cheered on a shot, and Schuster saying, "Well, we're in Canada," was the most inno- innocuous thing in the world, and it kind of blew up, and people got mad. Uh, people were mad at Ryan Fry pretty much all season. I think people are always mad at Ryan Fry, but I think Fry knows that and doesn't care. Yeah, <laughs> he's yeah. kind of the honey badger of curling. <laughs> Yeah, people are people were mad at Ryan Fry pretty much all year, and then people got mad at Team Epping because they had Brent Lang call Saville to let him know that he was off the team. People were mad that the skip wasn't the one who made the call, and it's like if I'm gonna if you're gonna fire me, have one of my friends tell me, please. There's a really good uh, Curling Legends that. podcast, which I mean, <laughs> Curling Legends podcast is great, especially it's a good summer listen where, you know, he go, Kevin Palmer goes and interviews all these guys, but there's one with Ian Tetley and Ian Tetley got fired three times. And I think every single time it was kind of either a very curt phone call or a fax. It was kind of like, <laughs> so A, people breaking up in curling teams has been going on as long as there are curling teams. And B, there's no easy way to have that conversation. Uh, so, <laughs> and so, you know, if it's your buddy rather than your skip, it's probably, you know, probably better that way. It's probably not, you know, there's probably no easy way to do that. But Savile's also a pro and he was, he's been cut before. He's cut by Glenn Howard when Glenn wanted to bring Scott on a few years back, right? So yeah. this happens. Uh, it happens at all levels. I, I mean, I've been cut. Uh-huh. I think I cut you once. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think yeah, you did. We're but still yeah, friends. Jonathan, yeah. <laughs> Jonathan, when you when you eventually fire me from this podcast, like have one of my friends do it. <laughs> I'll have Mark call you. <laughs> you got a text. Yes, you got please. a text from Mark saying, yes. "Can we talk?" <laughs> Can we, then I'll know that I'm off the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, uh, less funny examples of people getting mad. Um, you had team home and at play downs where you had someone make a comment about them being from Alberta. And then they get what they gave Rachel, the, um, the sportsmanship award, um, kind of as kind of as a joke basically. And then you had people harassing, team carry when they didn't do as well as at world. So you just had a lot of, a lot of people, a lot of people were mad pretty much all season, which is kind of crazy because this is, this was kind of a, a throwaway year because there weren't any Olympic points available at worlds. There weren't nearly as many CTRS points available as there will be at, you know, there's, there weren't any direct paths to, the roar of the rings available. Like if we had this during this season, Jonathan, what are the next three years going to be like? I think, well, okay. A, when, when you asked me to, to start doing a podcast, I was a bit worried about what we would talk about all year. And the one thing I've learned is that we don't have to worry about anything. Like every week, something juicy will come up. All we have to do is just follow <laughs> curling on Twitter and it gives us the content. So I don't know what the future will bring, but I'm sure it will bring more outrage on Twitter. Just outrage in general. 
I mean, yeah, I think there's always been, I, I think there is a weird way in which curling fans can be a bit precious. Um, you know, I'm like, <laughs> that's so perfect. it's just like, like any, and I think that's a tension of where the game is right now. Does it want, if it wants to be a professional sport, you know, big changes happen in professional sports teams all the time. Your favorite player gets traded. Uh, your favorite player leaves in free agency, right? Your favorite your favorite player gets cut. Uh, your favorite your favorite player gets drunk in red your deer. Your favorite player gets drunk in red deer. Uh, so all these things happen in other sports. And actually the things that have happened, like, like cutting Ryan Fry and then Ryan Fry getting Craig Savile cut would be like the most boring story uh, in the NBA or NHL or NFL, right? It'd be like, it'd be like a minor roster move that makes like That's no cool. news at all. That's called Tuesday. Yeah, not not even Tuesday. It's just like it's like here. It's just like chill out. If you, I mean, and I think that's it. Kind of cuts all ways. I mean, I mean, I realize the players at kind of the elite level in curling aren't making the same amount of money, and so in some ways, the social media headaches aren't really being compensated the same way as say, if you're LeBron James and you're getting a lot of hate online. Well, you're also a billionaire, so <laughs> I don't feel that bad for you, but. Um, I mean, that's part of the that's part of the game now. If it wants to become a professional game and it wants to use social media to promote itself, and I think it it does need to do both those things. Then people have to get used to the fact that teams will change, perhaps not in the ways you want. When then it's like, just don't cheer for them; cheer for someone else next year. One thing that cool, that was cool this year, um, switching gears, curling got on Netflix this year, Jonathan. Yeah. And like in a good way. Did you get? Yeah, for, for good. Yeah. Did you get a chance to watch um, to watch the Netflix uh, curling? Yeah, I did. I love. I think I've watched uh, it three doc- times. I keep showing it to people, so <laughs> it's like and I show it to non curlers. So if they're over, I'll say, "Let's watch this." It's only 30, 40 minutes, and it's not to kind of get them into curling, but it's it's well done so that a non curler can follow along. It's a great story. Um, and it's not Give us like, like having done so many kind of curling promotion things when we were getting the Oklahoma Curling Club going. Like I'm just sick and tired of the standard narrative, which is journalist comes, journalist sees curling on TV, says that looks easy, goes curling, falls on their butt, says curling it's harder than you think. And I'm like, that's the, the most boring story to me. So this was good that it wasn't a what is curling story, and it wasn't a curling is harder than you think story. It was a here's an interesting thing that happened in curling story, which is to my mind, a way better thing to watch. Give us the, give us the cliffs notes on the curling Netflix documentary. Uh, so it's from this TV show called losers. And I've actually all eight episodes are great. And the premise of the show is what happens to people who lose sporting competitions. And they look at eight different losers from eight really different sports. And in this one, they did an interesting choice, which was Pat Ryan, who in my mind is not who you think of when you think of curling loser. And what they did is looked at the Hackner double, which was certainly when I was growing up, the most famous curling shot. Probably a few have kind of displaced it since then. But the Hackner double at the 85 Briar, and Pat Ryan was on the losing end of that game. And so it, it shifts the most famous, for at least for the 80s and 90s, game in curling on its head and says, what was it like to be on the losing end of that shot? And then tells the story of how Pat used that to kind of build the Ryan Express of the late 80s and develop the the PL game, which uh, 
eventually edge of the free guard zone. So you also get a lot of interviews with Randy Furby in that special, and all of his sound bites are great. <laughs> sound bites are always great. How he how he doesn't have a TV gig is uh, beyond me. Because uh, you'd get fined by whatever um, whatever Canada's version of the FCC is. He, he's got to become the Don Cherry of crowing. Just during the, the half end half time yeah, break, so. just have him on to rant for two minutes. <laughs> It'd be gold. <laughs> Is he going to be like Cherry and rant against uh, European players? <laughs> I mean, he certainly did when he was a player. So when he was a player, <laughs> I, I remember him tearing into young Brad Gushu uh, when Gushu first arrived at the Briar. <laughs> somebody asked Gushu who he wanted to play. And he said, oh, I really want to play the Furby team. Then Furby, like this is the Furby 4 kind of highlights, and they, Furby just destroyed them. And then, then after the game, Furby came out and then just totally trashed Gushu some more in the post-media scrum. It just was like, I think he said something like, there you go. He's never, here's a guy who's never won like a bucket or a ratchet or something at a bond spiel. Have <laughs> you enjoyed your game? It's totally vicious. Anyway. What is the curling equivalent of visors that, that Furby can rant against? Uh... What is the curling? Well, I, if it was me, I would rant about stabilizers. <laughs> of course, well, he, of course, Dave Nero will use a stabilizer, so I'm sure he can't rant about that. But we can save that for this summer too. We can have an episode where you just talk about stabilizers and how much you hate them. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I guess we'll end our our kind of our, our interesting stories from the season with uh, sadly, we had to say goodbye to team Tomas Ulsrud this year. We had a lot of people step back from the game, but I think the biggest one and the one that resonates to even non curling people is Tomas Ulsrud. And it, you see his impact on the game simply because you had people in Oklahoma who started curling and as a team bought pants off of um, off of the Loudmouth Golf website because they saw the Norwegian curling team. So I think that in and of itself uh, kind of explains the impact that his team had on this game. And I think that they, they should hang a pair of pants in the rafters of every curling club in the U S and thank team Olsrud for, for what they did to help grow curling in the USA. Yeah. And I think, yeah, that, that was definitely what they'll always be remembered for, but they're also, you know, uh, an Olympic silver I mean, medalist, also really good. world champion, <laughs> two-time European champion, uh, I don't think they ever won a slam, but they were they were a really dominant team in Europe. Uh, and it's actually not clear uh, if like whilst who's going to step up from Norwegian curling after with his team retiring, right? That uh, mm-hmm. whether Wallstad steps up, uh, whether Ramsall, they're they're a bit young, but are they able to take the next step? But th- they they had a really kind of long run, which was great to see too. And they basically stayed together uh, for 12, 15 years, same lineup. So that was nice to see too. And just they had some of the best personalities in curling. If you want just 30 minutes of laughter, go find the bumpy at the Briar segments that Curling Zone did from the St. John's Briar, where they basically said, and I mean, comedy gold is let's take Christopher Sva and put him in 
some random place in Canada and just set him out, set him free among the populace and see what happens. And regardless of what you do there, you're going to get just comedy gold and setting him free in uh, St. John's, Newfoundland was even better. He went and got screeched in and it's amazing. Yeah, no, Bumpy's total character. Uh, I mean, the whole team was characters and they were kind of like old school. They, they, they were there to play and compete and win, but they were, Definitely also a team that like to have fun, both on the ice and kind of the friendly way as and off the ice kind of socializing and being good ambassadors for the game. So they'll be missed, uh, but, you know, nothing. I think the, the WCF needs to get them involved in some of their, their YouTube broadcasts. I think we need, we need Bompy during doing color at, at Worlds. That's my There opinion. you go. We've already got a new te- dream team for curling TV, Furby and Bumpy. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That'd be too Oh. That's we we talked about the the Epping and Fry uh reality TV show, Bumpy and Furby. That would be I mean, that's your if curling ever gets its own TV network, there's your um there's your Stephen A. Smith and Skip Bayless. Just stick Bumpy and Furby on at 9 a.m. every morning on curling television and let them debate <laughs> or yell at each other about whatever's yeah, going on. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> All right. Uh, wrapping up the season for the USA because I live in the USA, so I get to make our rundown. Um, US, this was USA curling's follow-up season after capturing gold at the Olympics and kind of a mixed bag. Um, team Schuster had a pretty solid year on tour, no really big wins other than the curling world cup event that was in Omaha where they beat Nicholas Adin again. Um, but Schuster and Corey Christensen went and won bronze at mixed doubles, which was the, I think the second bronze medal that the U S has won at mixed doubles. So Schuster kind of tried his hand at it this year and was pretty successful. So I wonder if we'll see him pull double duty at the next Olympics, playing both mixed doubles uh, and the four-person game. Um, in addition to winning the Curling World Cup at o- in Omaha, they made the playoffs at Worlds. They may they qualified at three GSOC events, which I, I can't remember them qualifying at three in one season before. Uh, on the women's side, Nina Roth made two Grand Slam of Curling semifinals, uh, but she was 0-5 against Jamie Sinclair, including 0-3 at uh, U.S. Nationals, which is why you saw Team Sinclair at Worlds. Yeah. So, interesting year for Team USA. Uh, they did better in the events that you really can't watch in the U.S. than the ones that maybe ha- are a little bit more high profile here in the U.S. Um, but all in all, a solid season for USA curling, but not not nearly the follow-up that you would kind of want, which, I mean, isn't unexpected. You kind of expect there to maybe be a bit of, bit of a step down after winning a big gold medal like that and then having to replace a player like Team Schuster did. You know, I would say they had a better year overall, which is obviously counterintuitive, right? Because they won a gold medal. Yeah. So for five days, they were the best team in the world of the last quad and they peaked where you want to peak, but this year they finished 13th, right? So just looking at the, the order of merit standings on, on the world curling tour right now. And so they finished ahead of Matt Dunstone. 
Like right at like 30, 14 is Dunstone, 13 Schuster, 12 Patterson. Uh, and if you go back three, four years, Schuster was kind of in that 20 to 30 zone. And so they're, they're now kind of a top 20 team for sure. Uh, and kind of, I think the interesting question for them is, can they take that step and just become a perennial top 10 team? And they're right on the cusp of that, especially first year, a new cycle, new vice breaking in. Um, I think, I think there's, there's a good chance they can be right. And then can kind of become, uh, you know, every time Schuster has been to worlds, uh, in the last cycle, he's kind of made the metal round, which that wasn't the case before. So they're definitely kind of climbing up there and sometimes in curling to kind of make that last step. It's a bit of a slow, slow climb, right? There's a lot of guys in that top 10 who, you know, the McCruthers, the, the Eppings, those, those teams haven't kind of punched through and won the big one yet either. So I guess Schuster has won the big one, but just hasn't kind of made the, the top 10 impact yet. All right, Jonathan, let's kind of go quick as we talk about other individual teams out there. We've been talking a while. Um, looking at the the new big, the big name new teams that we saw this year, which ones do you think worked? Uh, well, Kevin Cooey's team worked. And I think that was one that when the first, the lineup was announced, a lot of people were underwhelmed by, but some ways he got better results with this team than uh, with the super team that he had last cycle, at least first year out of the gate. Cause the first year out of the gate with the old team did not go nearly as well as this. They struggled. I don't even think they made the playoffs their first year at Briar. So good showing for them. Yeah. Came, uh, came up short at worlds, but I think we see, I think we've seen a little bit of, a, a, a different dynamic from the beginning of the year versus late in the year. Beginning of the year, you had, I mean, Ben Hebert is going to be the most out, outspoken person on just about any team, but he seemed really kind of heavily involved in the conversation like we saw this year with Matt Hamilton and Team Schuster. You saw Ben really being um, a bigger voice in the team with Kennedy and Lang um, not there. But then toward the end of the year, you kind of saw that, kind of back down and you saw it be more um, BJ Newfield BJ Newfeld and uh, Kevin Cooey involved in um, in the discussion and less so uh, Ben Hebert. So you kind of saw more of a separation between the front end and the back end toward the end of the year. Whereas before uh, the typical team Cooey is, it is a four person conversation anytime that uh, there's, there's a, uh, a relatively important shot going on. But um, the other thing we saw from team Cooey was buzzer beaters, just buzzer beaters all over the place. Um, you know, a, a, a Cooey team is always going to be a team that, that talks a lot and starts running out of time. But we saw that it seemed like it was even more so this year. Yeah, I mean, he, he ran out of the clock. But I think the flip side of that is how it, every single one of those buzzer beaters was like money. Right? It was they, they yeah. were spectacular. They weren't just buzzer. They were spectacular buzzer beaters. Like every single one of those was a highlight reel shot. So uh, that's pretty good. I got to say. He went all Damian Lord for a basketball analogy <laughs> on the curling world. Yeah. <laughs> From half court. Exactly, pull up, yeah. hit it. <laughs> Just dribble out the clock. What is he doing? And then pull up from 40 feet. Cash. That's Kevin Cooey. Um, uh, I thought Team Carey worked. Um, the, the last thing that they'll kind of be remembered for for this season, other than, well, other than the silly season, the last couple of GSOC events was 
you know, failing to get to the playoffs at Worlds. But I mean, this team won a Scott won the Scotties. It's the second Scotties title title for Chelsea Carey. Um, it seems like uh, she's always able to to step her game up when she gets to the Scotties, and I think that this is a good team for her. I think this is the best fit for her that she's had really since I've started paying attention to uh, to professional curling. And um, I think this is going to be one of those teams that's there at the end for uh, getting to the Olympics out of Canada. Yeah, no, I, I mean, she lost the, the uh, Roar of the Rings final last year as well. So yeah. she's put in some pretty good results in major events uh, the last few seasons. And she's still kind of for curling relatively young, right? So mm-hmm. I don't even think Jennifer, I, I think, is she 32, 33? How old is Chelsea Carey? I don't know. She's early 30s. And I think it's kind of worth keeping in mind that JJ didn't win. Uh, she's 34. She's 34. So Jennifer Jones didn't win a heart until she was 33, I think, in 2000. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, early 30s. So, I, I, again, Jennifer Jones, and I'm thinking of other kind of great ones like Colleen Jones, most women's skips really only kind of put together their runs kind of mid-30s through early 40s. So she's just entering her peak, already has two Scotties in her title under her kind of to, to her kind of claim. I think there's a good chance she could become on that par with Holman and Jones, or maybe just takes Jones's kind of spot at that level when Jones kind of ages out. I, I would not age out, but you know, she's in her mid forties now. So probably this is her last cycle. Um, so I think sometimes Chelsea Carey kind of gets forgotten about in the competitive women's conversation, but uh, like you said, she kind of has a nose for a knack for kind of showing up big and big events. Yep. And we will definitely see her at next year's Scotties where she will be team Canada uh, in Europe. I mean, team Tiran, the new team Tiranzoni <laughs> turned out pretty good, right? <laughs> silver, silver at the Euros, gold at Worlds. They win a GSOC event. And then they finished second at the Curling World Cup Grand Final. Uh, not a bad little season, eh? Yeah, no, really good team. They, as I said last year when we, were, when we were first potting, this team was put together to win a gold medal in 2022. And uh, they showed they are a definite threat for that this year. Is the only thing for them just not being not getting bored these next two seasons? as they And then that last season, obviously – ramp up and go for it um, to try and, and represent Switzerland and win gold at the Olympics. How do you, I mean, after you have this type of year, your first year when you're supposed to be in that forming stage and you have this much success this early, how do you not get bored for these next two seasons? I don't know if it's not get bored. I mean, they still finished um, fifth overall in order of merit. So Einerson, Jones, Holman, and Hasselberg still finished ahead of them. That that kind of intuitively makes sense to me. Just they, I think the Game of Stones guys kind of point this out. They have a knack for being really on or just atrocious. So I'd say the next step for them is to kind of get that Holman, Hasselberg kind of Jones, every single event we're showing up and we're, we're coming to play kind of consistency. Um, so that's probably that if I was coaching them, which I doubt they would ever ask me, but that would kind of be the target I set for them for, for next year is, can you just kind of 
be able to kind of repeat those performances every single event because they can obviously do it in the big moments. Um, I'm not really sure if it's a matter of getting bored, but we certainly have seen teams come out of the gate in the first year of a quad uh, and then not really be doing much kind of late in the quad. So um, that's kind of perhaps a possible threat, but I, th- I'm, I think they'll be there. Like, they'll definitely be the Swiss representative unless something kind of completely unforeseen happens. And uh, they'll, I mean, they'll definitely be on tour. They got the funding, they got the status now. So they'll, they'll definitely be a podium threat throughout this quad for sure. What are some teams that are maybe still works in progress? I mean, to me, the one that stands out is uh, McRuthers. Um, and I think the main thing for them is going to be figuring out who skips that team. Yeah, I think A, figuring out who skips that team and B, figuring out what's going on. Because if you'd asked me, when again, when, you, when looking at paper, I actually had McRuthers slightly ahead of Cooey, just kind of on paper this time last year. I uh, figured, you know, Reed, uh, you know, Reed's team was pretty much intact and they were just adding Mike McEwen. So adding one player normally doesn't kind of throw a team completely out of whack. But I would say that this year's team underperformed both McEwen's team and uh, Carruthers' team from the previous year. So definitely kind of a, a big disappointment, I think, for that year, for that team. And the challenge is going to be, can they figure out what's going on there and get better for next year? Yeah, I think there's so much talent on that team. They've got it. If they can figure out maybe what's going on upstairs, that the possibilities are limitless for that for this team. But you can tell that there's just – you can tell it's, it, it doesn't really have anything to do with ability right now, that the ability's there, but there's just – I don't know. It, it seems like it's a sports psychology issue to me, just, just watching this team on television play curling. Yeah, that that's kind of what it's. It, that's kind of like what I take away from it. Or team dynamic, right? I think they've. I think they've tried every possible way of having, you know, them throw it. At least the back end throw it, and at some point they just got to pick a lineup and stick with it, and just commit to doing that for an extended period of time and see what comes. I think the switching back and forth is just not good, uh, long term for team dynamics. So. You know, hopefully they get that sorted out, and we see what happens uh, next year. Can we call Kerry Anderson's team a work in progress as well? Because they they won pretty much every, I mean, or either won or did really well in pretty much every cash spiel or GSOC event that they entered, but kind of crashed and burned at the Manitoba Scotties, and then at the scotty's wildcard game in pretty spectacular ways yeah so that i would say they are the female version of team epping they're kind of kind of very similar seasons because the epping team had a fantastic um cash season as kind of john epping's teams normally do but again kind of crashed out of the ontario championship it seems the same thing for einerson and i think there's always been this kind of a team in curling. Like in a certain sense, Mike McEwen kind of had that rep for a long time too. Could kind of do really well in the slams, do really well in the cash circuit, but couldn't get past out in Ontario. Um, Einerson wasn't a case of knocking off Jones, but next year she's going to have to knock off Jones if she wants to get to the Scotties. So um, it only gets harder next year. And a bunch of other very good teams. Yeah. So yeah. it's it, actually getting to the Scotties is not going to get any easier for that team, but that that's going to be, 
their challenge. In a certain sense, it's only two games out of a long season. So in some ways, it's not fair. But those are two games that team was built to win. And so it's obviously disappointing for them, I'd say. And then here in the U.S., uh, Jamie Sinclair's team was coming off a very successful season where they made the playoffs at Worlds, won, a G- won the Players' Championship, uh, then made a little bit of lineup tweaks coming into the season, had kind of an up-and-down year, did very, very well whenever they played other U.S. teams, but not as well as they probably would have liked in on the uh, in the GSOC events, and now they've got more changes coming as Monica Walker is taking a little bit of a step back from competitive curling. Kind of surprising. I thought she was the best lead in the U.S. Uh, on the women's side, so that was kind of surprising for me to see. But more changes coming for Team Sinclair as they try to find the magic from from last season. Yeah, that that was a weird subplot to USA curling, right? That Sinclair seemed to have Nina Ross number, but certainly on the slams, Nina had the Nina's team had the better year, right? So uh it's interesting. In a certain sense it's good for the USA to have two really strong women's teams, but it's it felt like the Sinclair team was kind of hot and cold. And like you said, really unbeatable mm-hmm. at the US level, but kind of perhaps not really punching through in the worlds or uh, the slam events. And then two teams that got together only to break up. You have team John Epping, who uh, is going to be a great reality show next weekend, next year. And then team Ali Flaxy. Um, that seemed like it was going to be tough to, to work. Uh, Flaxy um, commuting from, Northern Ontario to Manitoba. I know some of the early tournaments she had, I think it was difficulty getting enough time off work. So a lot of the early tournaments, she wasn't even involved with the team. Um, so that, I mean, that team just kind of uh, wasn't able to, to make it work this year. And now you have a team, you have Kate Cameron and Taylor McDonald teaming up with, um, with Laura Walker and playing in Alberta. And then you have Ali Flaxy uh, moving to back to playing in Ontario. With Caitlin Jones, right? Correct. So that'll be an interesting team to see. Um, I mean, with, with Epping, he, he is a churner. If I can continue my absurd basketball analogies, he's the Daryl Morley, Morley of, uh, <laughs> of competitiveness curling. Like, like his lineups change kind of perpetually. Uh, so, I was a little bit surprised. Well, I, I was so again. I was not sold on the Lang Savile front end. I'll be honest. I mean, I, I like both of them. I, I personally think um, starting in your forties, elite curling uh, front end rules, given what, what's demanded of a front end player these days, and how front end players are kind of built. Um, I think they're they're probably not well set up for front end. I, I kind of figured that at some point Savile Lang would go back in and just grab some young guys and kind of repeat what uh, Hart and Howard did with them back in the early 2000s. So I wasn't sold on this version of the Epping team, but I'm not really sold on the new version either. So uh, <laughs> we'll see, uh, you know? Yeah. That's kind of my thought on that team as well. We'll, we'll, we'll see about yeah, that. Yeah. So we'll, we'll see about that. Uh, but you know, they still are four great curlers. I just, I just not sure if it works together as a unit. So yeah. Uh, we saw some breakout stars this year, Jonathan. First year of a quad and um, kind of some teams that I want to point out. We kind of talked about them a little bit at the top team, Kim Minji. Um, 
for them to still be junior eligible and have the year that they did with the way that they performed at the curling world cup, um, at worlds, um, at, uh, the Asia Pacific championships, um, and then only be kind of average at juniors. It was kind of funny, but, uh, for them to be this young and this good, this quick, and really their first season going up against competitive, uh, women's teams, uh, was kind of impressive. And it means that they're probably going to be around for a long time to come. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I mean, yeah, they're definitely stars to go. I, I think the, the funny thing is, um, the gap between kind of elite women's curling and junior women's curling is kind of tight, right? And so it's not that it's it's kind of not that surprising that maybe maybe it is in a certain sense surprising you can go kind of medal the women's worlds and then um, not do anything at the the junior women's, but they you know they were kind of on the cusp of the playoffs there. But to be nineteen and to be kind of winning the podium in a women's world championship. Uh, that's that's really impressive. So I think they and just kind of how they played well on tour all year. They they really look like kind of the next big thing in women's curling. Period. I'd say like the they're kind of a phenom team. Maybe maybe the most impressive performance since either Eve Muirhead kind of in her late teens or Rachel Holman kind of in her late teens. I'd say. All right, Jonathan, give us uh, one of your breakout stars for 2018, 2019. You mean in terms of predictions? No, no, no. For oh, no, for, yeah. for this year. Yeah. Who was one team? Who was who was a team that you really thought uh, broke out? Well, Team McDonald, right? Scott McDonald's rink, I think, out of Ontario. That was a, a really kind of big, impressive run. I I honestly hadn't even heard of them before the the season started, and then kind of. They're kind of on the door, kind of last team not qualifying for slams, and they got into a slam, and then it's like Ontario championships happened, and they just destroyed that field and put in a really solid showing at the their first buyer too. So really impressive for them, and hopefully that generates the kind of money and opportunities that will uh, let them kind of play a full competitive uh, circuit next year, qualify for more slams, and see if they can kind of take that next step from kind of high teens to, to being kind of an elite contender. Uh, to me, they were one of the coolest stories of the season to see them really go for it on tour, play a lot, really commit to, to everything. Um, and even as a, a new team this year, uh, plus, I mean, they've got the personality too. They're, they seem like a really fun team to follow. Uh, but yeah, what they did uh, just running roughshod over over the field at the Ontario Championships was kind of crazy, but hopefully we see them back in the Briar next year. I think the Briar, the Briar next year is in Kingston, which I think is their hometown. So as awesome a story as they were this year, they would be even more so uh, next year if they were able to get a get a hometown Briar. Uh, Jonathan, my uh, my next breakout star. Uh, I'm getting kind of away from the teams, but I want to say uh, Katrina from the Lazy Handle Show. Uh, I think she was a breakout star this year. I think everyone, uh, everyone in the curling community was impressed. If you haven't seen her, she's um, she's this girl from I think she's from Ottawa. She's from, I think she's from Ottawa, uh, but does her own curling show uh, on YouTube. Does a lot of uh, interviews. She was able to go to. 
uh, one of the Curling World Cup events this year as a guest of the WCF and do a lot of interviews there. Uh, if you haven't seen the Lazy Handle show, by all means, uh, go watch. It was really cool to see her kind of break out this year and everyone uh, kind of just see how awesome she is and for her to get a chance to, to interview some of some of the game's top players. Yeah, no, she's great. It's and it, it was fun. Um, well, I need to see see her break out. I think it was this is probably because we were doing a podcast. My first year, we'll be paying attention to the podcast social media landscape, and uh, she's definitely got a bright future in it. But there's also a lot of other great kind of YouTube shows, um, social media channels, podcasts out there. So uh, she's definitely got a, a future, and probably. Uh, Maybe taking Shara Bernard's up spot on TSN in the not too distant future. There you go. All right, Jonathan, give us another uh, breakout star for this season. I will have to go with the Matsumura rink out of Japan. I was just, I thought they had it a wicked world. Um, because they're curling in the Asia Pacific, we don't get to see them curl all that much. It's just the odd uh, YouTube kind of feed. Uh, but I, you know, just how they played the game. I love the fact that like, there's some teams you watch them and you know exactly what they're going to do in every situation. The thing that kind of really impressed with Matsumura is that he was always mixing it up. Like, and, and so I can imagine that's a big advantage playing some of those teams because they just didn't know what was coming from one end to the next. And the other thing was he had an, a, just a wicked eye for angles, just a super creative skip, uh, kind of a lot of fun to watch. Um, you know, just, just missed out on a medal again, but, uh, I'm sure they'll be back. Uh, I know, I know Japanese curling is getting more and more competitive. So winning Japan is definitely not guaranteed for them, but, uh, to me, they were kind of my favorite team to watch at this year's world championship on the men's side for sure. Uh, and then finally, uh, can't talk about breakout stars this year without talking about team Silvernagel. Uh, it was really cool to see a team from Saskatchewan back in the playoffs and uh, playing in that page one, two game. Unfortunately, they weren't able to, unfortunately they weren't able to uh, get out uh, or get into that final um, and have a, a Saskatchewan team there in the in the Scotties final, but a big breakout season for Team Silvernagel, and you saw uh, big crowds whenever they got the chance to play in the two slams that were in Saskatchewan and in uh, in North Battleford. So, you know, Saskatchewan to me is kind of the canary in the coal mine when it comes to the health of curling not necessarily just in Canada but in the world because you need curling to be healthy in Canada in order for it to be healthy in the world and if you start to see curling starting to fail in Saskatchewan then I think that that is um then I think then I think that that uh then that's a big scary thing for for curling in general and I think you've started to see the popularity of curling starting to wane in Saskatchewan, even though they have the biggest, that probably the the most ardent curling fans. I think their numbers are are way down. And there was a series of stories, um, series of stories written about how Saskat how curling has started to kind of struggle recently in Saskatchewan for a variety of reasons. So it's good to have a Saskatchewan team like Team Silvernagel do as well as they did at the Scotties, and hopefully they're able to help. Uh, stabilize and 
get the sport growing again there in Saskatchewan. Yeah, no, it was good to see that. Um, I think maybe this, that's probably a talker for this summer about uh, threats to curling. We, I know we talked a bit about it early in the season, but uh, it's not good to hear curling clubs closing. Part of it's probably demographics in Saskatchewan, to be honest, and uh, just a shift, just well, actually just globally from kind of rural to urban. But um, yeah, it was good to see, as you said, a Saskatchewan team kind of make playoffs uh, and potentially, and, you know, potentially they'll be kind of there for years to come, which is good too. All right, Jonathan, let's wrap this up with a look at 2019-2020. Uh, give me a team that you think will break out next year. Who's a team that we're going to look at when we do our end of year review and say, you know what, that team kind of came through and now they're they're one of the stars of the game. So I guess, so what define break out? I think we're going to say, I, I know it is, it's tough to, it's tough to quantify, right? But it's, you know, a, yeah. either a team that comes from, Going from complete unknown to being not just on the radar, but beating some of the teams that we're used to see uh, being there at the at the end of the week, or or make it to a Scotty's in the Briar. In that case, it would be like Scott McDonald, or Bet. or a team that breaks through and gets the big win that they haven't had, like a team that breaks through and finally wins a GSOC event or breaks through and wins a Euros or wins uh, wins the Asia Pacific. Like a good example of that would have been uh, Mowat two years ago. Yeah. Uh, two, so two young teams that I, I'm not sure if next year's their year, but two that I'm kind of watching is Isabella Orana's team out of Sweden, the kind of the, the younger Swedish team, uh, obviously kind of dethroning Hasselberg would be an accomplishment, but they kind of had a sneaky good campaign. If you kind of go look at the the standings this year, they finished 15th right behind Jamie Sinclair. Uh, they're all early twenties, um, really competitive kind of, uh, kind of tagged as the next big thing in Swedish curling. Again, getting past Hasselberg is going to be tough. But they're the kind of team that I could definitely see starting to qualify in slams, uh, maybe even winning a slam, perhaps even perhaps upsetting uh, Hasselborg in the national final. I'm not sure if that would then give them enough points to, to go to Worlds, but they're certainly kind of uh, an up-and-coming team in Europe. I think Kelsey Rock. I think she's kind of, you know... I, whenever I see someone win kind of back-to-back juniors, either Canadian Nationals or World Nationals, that kind of, to me, they tend to go on and have pretty successful um, adult curling careers. So I, th- I think she's kind of back with her old team that she won the juniors with. Uh, had a decent year last year. Uh, finished 28th um, with Chelsea Carey not in Alberta. That kind of makes Alberta because she's team Canada. That makes Alberta a little bit easier to win. Obviously she'd have to get past Scheidegger, the Laura Walker rink, but uh, certainly capable of upsetting both those teams. That might be another kind of stealth team next year, the women's side. Oh, you clearly read my notes um, because the team that I'm picking is going to be competing against uh, Team Rock for the right to go to the Scotties. I'm taking that Laura Walker team that you talked about as she 
uh, is taking over a team that's going to have Kate Cameron at third, uh, Taylor McDonald at second, and Nadine Scotland moving from skipping to uh, throwing lead rocks. Um, and they're going to be playing out of Alberta, and I'm going with them. I think that they're... I think they're they're a breakout team for for next year that I think may wind up winning Alberta and representing Alberta at the Scotties. So we already have our first bad beer bet of the next season. I suppose <laughs> lined up <laughs> for the Alberta Scotties. Rock versus Walker. Yeah, but then Scheidegger will just win it, and then we're both going to have to. Then we're both going to have to pay That's up, true. right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, somebody else will take them and we'll lose, but that's fine. We've already got our we've already got a bit of intrigue for next season lined up. So who do you got on the men's side? Who is this year's Scott McDonald? <laughs> I think calling Scott McDonald is kind of a bit out there. I will say I think I think Tyler Tardy, which isn't a name we haven't heard before, obviously, but um, he's plays in British Columbia. He's a three-time world junior champ, a Canadian junior champ, just won the world juniors this year, um, which kind of holds the record. He opted to not do his last year of juniors. The last time we saw a junior skip that dominant, you could make the case maybe Botcher, maybe Charlie Thomas, but to me, he kind of has shades of maybe Matt Dunstone. All, all of Conacon have a really good, successful kind of adult careers, but he kind of has a bit of shades of Johnny Moe for me. So, and John, John Morris made a pretty smooth transition to the men's game. Like he was playing in a Briar final, I think two, three years removed from, from uh, winning men's, uh, winning juniors. So, um, I think Tyler Tardy has the potential to have that kind of a men's career where he, he just kind of smoothly transitions, doesn't go through that awkward three, four year period. We don't hear from him. Uh, they're playing in British Columbia. So really for them, Cotto's the big obstacle to get past. I think they made quarterfinals this year already. So uh, certainly capable of competing in the men's side. So I'd say that's the kind of breakout team on the men's side, at least, uh, at least domestically in Canada. All right, I'll take. I'm going to take an American team. I'm going to take the Young Bucks USA uh, team with Corey Dropkin throwing fourth rocks and Mark Finner skipping and playing second. I, they made a bunch of finals this year. They didn't win any of them, but I think that's the next step for them is figuring out how to win those last games of events because they they had a really good year on tour and just could not finish. And they, they kind of have a rivalry with the Ruinen team now. And I think next year is the year that they kind of, they, they step up and, and maybe challenge, maybe challenge Schuster at, uh, at U.S. Nationals. Yeah, I think so. I think they're kind of a good up and coming team. So I noticed neither of us picked Jared Allen. <laughs> so uh, give him, give him a couple more years. Give him a couple more years. So. I think I think the experiment's still going on, but uh, be curious to follow that story too. Yep. Yeah, that'll be one to follow for 2019-2020. All right, Jonathan, uh, I think that I am way overdue to go change a diaper, so I will probably uh, head out, and hopefully we can do this again here in the near future and maybe have, uh, maybe have some more guests, maybe have some Professor of Peel segments. 
Um, if you have any suggestions for a Professor of Peel segment, please send it our way. Uh, we are at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com. Please uh, subscribe and leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, Google, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Those reviews help us get found. And the, uh, the best thing that you can do for us, the biggest compliment we can receive is if you tell your friends about the show if you liked it. Um, you can find all of our posts and all of our old episodes at rocksacrossthepond.com. You can also scream at us on Facebook, Instagram, and we are at Curling Podcast on Twitter. Uh, Jonathan, anything you want to say before we get out of here? Uh, have a good summer to everyone. Uh, enjoy the time away from the ice. I think we'll probably try to do a couple over the summer, but we're definitely going to kind of ease back a bit and uh, uh, yes. put into other things <laughs> in our life. Yep. All right. So we will talk to you all soon, and uh, thank you for listening.